stay home, we're told. Be strong. Be safe. Spend time with a family. We can get through this. That's the kind of message you've been hearing as a mantra over and over again. Athletes, movie stars, singers, government officials, healthcare workers, that's the message that they have for us. That's what you've been bombarded with. Don't we Christians have a better message than that as we go through this pandemic? Doesn't the Bible reveal something more that's going on? Is it just about stay home, be strong, we can do it? I think the Bible has much to say. Please open in your Bibles this morning to Peter's first letter, a letter that was actually written to Christians under duress and about to face persecution. First Peter, we're going to look in chapter 1 at only one verse this morning, verse 13. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And we're going to consider what our response should be to this pandemic and why. I think we've all been greatly challenged through these unsettling times. Uh, change forces us to think, how do we navigate these, what are, for many of us, uncharted waters? What do we do? How do we live? How do we do ministry? What do we expect? Really living the Christian life at any time, in any circumstance, begins with the mind and begins with the heart, with how you and I think and what you and I desire. If you've ever been looking for the secret to living the Christian life powerfully, well, you just heard it, only I have to say it's no secret because it's been in the Bible for a long time and it's been revealed. When you think correctly and set your desires towards doing God's will, then you are going to live wisely. You're going to live correctly, no matter your circumstances, whether they're up or whether they are down. And I think 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 is a great verse to show us how to think, how to think as Christians, especially in hard times, like what they were about to go through, various trials as he describes it, or persecution. Yes, even pestilence, that is, viruses or financial upheaval. First, let's read this power-packed text, and then we're going to consider its wisdom for us. First Peter 1.13 just simply says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revealing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to ask as we just step into this text for just one Sunday. Why did Peter even write this here in his first letter? Would you back up with me a minute? Let's widen out the lens. You could place your finger in uh, uh, that spot and go back to verse 3. Notice that in verses 3 through 12, if you look at it and scan through it, it's one long section. And Peter was teaching a subject there. He was teaching about our great salvation as Christians. He said, we Christians have a tremendous salvation that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, and we possess it. Look back at verse 3. He puts this teaching about our salvation in the form of a blessing. He blesses God. He has a blessing towards God. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why are we blessing him? Because God has caused us to have a new birth, to be born again. We have a new birth, and by our new birth that God gave us, that's something the world doesn't have, and so they can't experience it. We have now a living hope. 
Because we're born again, we have a living hope. Why? Because the one we're hoping in and waiting for is actually alive. We don't have a dead Savior. He's risen from the dead. Just let your finger go down to verses 4 and 5 also. Notice that along with our hope, God says we have an indestructible inheritance. People are wondering what's happening to their retirement account right now. You know, where is your actual inheritance? Where would it be safe? The stock market jumps up and jumps down all the time. But we have a rich inheritance and it's reserved somewhere. Not in the Federal Reserve. It's reserved in heaven for us. And in the meantime, God actually protects us from spiritual harm, it says in verses 4 and 5. Let's just keep scanning this text. Verses 6 through 9, it says that God has granted us an overcoming faith right down here, even though we have to be subject to various kinds of trials and troubles on earth. Why do we have to go through these trials? He even answers that in verses 6 through 9. He says, God wants to refine our faith the way gold is refined to make us pure when we come out on the other side. When we come out on the other side, we're going to be shining for God and we're going to be commended by God. We're going to receive praise from God. Man, this is an incredible salvation. You keep going through the text. You go down to verses 10 through 12. And lastly, it says that God gave us a salvation that's greatly valued. Well, who values our salvation? The prophets of olden days talked about it, he says. Then there were evangelists who sacrificed to bring you the good news. And did you know that even angels are very interested in this great salvation that was given to us? So much so, they carefully peer into trying to figure out what God is doing by granting us salvation. That's everything he talked about, verses 3 through 12, leading up to verse 13. We have this incredible grace-filled salvation, both now And God is going to reveal more glory to us in the future, much more. So who can even speak of these realities without joy and more joy and great joy? In fact, Peter actually says, as he's thinking about all of this, he writes in verse 7, we rejoice with an inexpressible joy. He gets so excited about what he's been given as a Christian, so excited about what's still coming in the future that he's just bubbling over in joy. Now, what do we do about our salvation. How do we respond to all of this? That's what verse 13 is all about. That was just background. Verse 13 marks a transition. It begins with a word, therefore. That's a strong Greek word indicating, let's make a conclusion out of this. How do we respond? What do we do? Because you've already been born again, because you already have a living hope, because you're being protected in the present, because you have glory in the future, Therefore, here's what I want you to do. Here's how to respond. Prepare your minds for action. Get your mind ready. Remember I said, what is the secret to living the Christian life? It starts in your thinking and your desires. There it is. Get your mind ready for action. This is not a time to flake out in your thinking. Verse 13 is like a stepping stone to a new section in Peter's letter, a section to teach us about responses to salvation. If you kind of look forward beyond verse 13, you'll see from verse 14 and verse 13, 14 and on into chapter two, it's all about our responses. What should we do? Well, first we have responses to God. Verse 13 says, I want you to hope in Christ who's coming. Verses 14 through 16 says, here's another response. Be holy in all of your behavior. If you keep reading into verses 17 through 21, be reverent in your attitude, even as you remember what God has done for you. And then there's not only responses to God, it talks about responses to others. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, it urges us to love one another with a sincere love, be fervent in that love. 
there are even responses to ourselves that we have about salvation. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, lay off all those evil desires that you had from your old man, and then like a newborn baby, hunger and long for the word of God. That's kind of the whole context. And verse 13 is stuck right in the middle of all this. It's the first response that we have to our great salvation. Our first response to God's salvation is simply this. Keep hoping in Christ's future display of salvation. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Since God has made our future so fantastic, I know you can't possibly think that our future is going to be that great right now. That's probably not on your minds, and that's why you have to lift the eyes of faith and think about that. Since our future is so fantastic, this is not the time to get depressed. It's not the time to flake out. It's not the time to be confused. It's not the time to be looking around us wondering what is happening. It's not the time for that. We should be acting like we actually are strong, that we focused our minds completely on something God promised he's going to do, and whatever's happening now hasn't changed that at all. I think verse 13 is a transforming and freeing thought, right, in the midst of a world that's gone wrong. The world just says, stay home, be safe, be strong, you can do it. There's so much more that we can see here. I think this little text presents us three ways to respond to our present difficulties. That's the outline. If you're taking notes at home, I'd love for you to do that. I think you'll get more out of it. And really, the first two responses lead into the third. I'm going to reread that verse, and literally, this is how it reads. Preparing your minds for action. There's an I-N-G word there. Preparing your minds for action. Keeping sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's really only one command, but the first two are participles that lead into that command. The first two exhortations just say, here's what's going to help you fix your hope on Christ's future coming. You got it? So here we go. Response number one, prepare your minds for action. Literally, Peter instructs us, gird your minds for action. In the first translation of the NASB, that's how it was translated, gird your minds for action. What a strange image, girding the mind. I mean, you might gird up clothes. Why would you gird the mind? Well, in their society, they wore long robes. I don't. You don't, probably. You might have a long robe on right now. Um, I don't know. Um, they also wore long one-piece tunics. So girding kind of referred to pulling it up, pulling the robe up, tying them all around the waist. Why would you do that? Because you were getting ready for action. You were getting ready to do some physical work. You wanted to move about easier. Today, we wouldn't say gird up. Today, we would say, hey, get up, strap on the, the belt and lace up your shoes. It's time for some action. This participle here, girding, or translated preparing, is in the middle voice. Now, I know this is a technical thing, but actually that's kind of important. It's not just grammar. What it means is you have to do this for your own mind. Put another way, nobody else is going to help you do this one commandment here. No one else is going to help you gird your mind, prepare your mind. You have to take responsibility for what goes through your mind. You have to do that. What you think about is your responsibility. You can't blame anybody else for it. Let's take a minute to talk about what is the mind. And I know what the mind is, but let's focus in on what he means by this. The term is an interesting term. It's dianoia, 
It does not mean the human intellect. It's not focused on, he's not saying, hey, I want you guys to start getting smarter in your decisions here. That's not what he's talking about. It's not about an IQ. The dianoia means the Christian's understanding of God-given truth. God wants a stirring up the diligent use of the insight into reality and truth that God gave us. The word dianoia is often used in the New Testament to refer to, to perception, to ethical understanding, that, that aspect of our thinking. There's one Greek lexicon that defines it this way. It says, it's the seat of perception and understanding resulting in insight, comprehension, and understanding. Do you know what the greatest commandment is in all of the Bible? You do, right? It, it reads this way in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. It says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, that's the term cardia, and with all thy soul, psuche, and with all thy mind, that's the same word here, dianoia. Unbelievers do not have a godly dianoia, a godly mind. They don't have that to put into action for God. In Colossians 1.21, speaking about life before being a Christian, it says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. That's the same word engaged in evil deeds. See how it went? Because they're hostile in mind, they couldn't live the Christian life. They went into evil deeds. Same thing Ephesians 4.18 says, unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. So they don't have the light that's on. It's dark. And so they can't stir up the use of their mind to do anything because they don't even have it. But we believers are different. We really are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, it says we have a different mind. You know what it calls? It calls that we've been given the mind of Christ. In other words, the way that Jesus thinks, he's been giving that way of thinking to us. It's a mind that's shaped and formed by Bible truths. God's revelation has come into our mind. It's taken over the way we think. And now we're, we're done believers. We think differently. It's that mindset, Peter's saying, I want you to stir that thing up, get that going. We might ask, how is it that we got a different kind of a mind? I found the answer to that in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. It says, we know that the Son of God has come into the world and has given us understanding. That's the same word. The Son of God has entered into this world and has given to us understanding so that we might know God who is true. Hey, listen, the mindset that we have was not the product of a long process of worldly education. You can't get this from state education. You can't buy this. You can't get it online. You can't Google it. Our understanding is a gift from the Son of God. If you want a picture of how this works, I think 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 kind of explains it. It says this, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, that's from Genesis 1, you know, let there be light, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So on the first day of creation, what happened? God said, let there be light. And there was, there was light, right? God just said, I don't want there to be darkness anymore. I want there to be light. And there was, but there was darkness in our dianoia, darkness in our mind. And God also said inside of us, let there be understanding. Let there be light. And the son of God turned on the light in our minds, you see. So Peter is now exhorting, stir that up, use that, put your Christian mind into action. 
Now is not the time for you to be sitting at home watching TV all day long. It's not the time to be turning on the computer and just allowing your mind and your thoughts to be yanked around by other people that are telling you this is what you should be thinking. This is not the time, as we say, to veg out. Don't veg out. Now is not the time for you to be lazy, people. I know you may be tempted at home to be lazy. This is not the time to do it. Instead, free your mind from distractions. Untangle it from hindrances. Get rid of all of the excess baggage and the clutter. Make full use of something that you have that's precious, and that is your God-giving understanding. What is life about? What's happening in this world? Bring your doctrine to bear on what's happening in our world. And when you talk to other people and when you're by yourself and contemplating, make sure all of that truth is flooding in your mind and let it lead you forward in whatever you choose to do. Jesus is getting ready to enter into this world. If I knew the date and time and hour, I would be a false prophet because, you know, you can't really know that stuff because Jesus said nobody knows that. But if I knew it, you know, if someone knew it, they'd say, well, it's going to happen in April. It's going to happen, you know, in the year 2025 or something. We don't know. We just know it's a lot closer now than it was before. We know there are signs we're to be looking for. We know it's going to happen. It's not a fairy tale. It's happening. Everything's lining up to make that happen. We have that understanding of eschatology. We have the understanding of the sin in the world. We have the understanding of what God is like and what he's doing, who Jesus is, who we are, what the church is. We put it all together, stir up that Christian mind, make sure we know what's going on. I think now more than ever, we need discipline and focus of mind. You know, when you get time alone and there's nobody looking over your shoulder and nobody's holding you accountable for anything, that's when you really find out what you're made of in your heart. Wouldn't you agree? I've had a job for years and years where I've had to discipline myself, look after my own time, make sure I'm not wasting it. I'm used to that. I remember the thing they kept saying in seminary to pastors, when you go out, you don't have as much accountability and this and that, don't get lazy. And that was always in my conscience. Don't be lazy. Use your time. Work hard. Make sure that you're, uh, you're, you're living at fullest uh, for God. But some of you may not be used to that. And you're at home and you're like, well, there ain't nobody telling me what to do right now. I could watch like three episodes of that and I could play this game for two hours. This is a dreadful temptation for you right now. We shouldn't be bouncing around on social media. I'm not saying you can't be on social media, just spending all the time on it. Look, the world does not know how to think. You have to combat that way of thinking and replace it with a better way of thinking. Your mind cannot be controlled by worldly others but by Scripture's priorities. I would ask you if, you, if you don't prepare your minds, don't you think somebody else will? Don't you think someone else is going to try to lead your mind? Loose thinking leads to loose living. Worldly thinking leads to worldly living. An unprepared mindset wastes God-given moments and opportunities. Right now, it feels kind of surreal. It really does. It doesn't feel real. We have quarantines and such. Can you imagine that? There are, there's going to be a day in the United States of America where we're all going to be quarantined. That's ah, never going to happen. Just happen. <laughs> For me, it could be months because of my conditions. Like, whew, where did that come from? But this is a God-given moment for you personally, for your family, for your church. Think about it. Stir up your mind. As I said, many of you have been forced home. You're out of your routines. And rather than girding your minds, honestly, you've become sloppy. You're a mess. 
Now, don't think I have a camera on your, your room right now. I'm like, you know, is he watching us right now? We look like a mess. If, if that is bothering you, that's your conscience. I can't see anything. Um, the family's a mess. You're out of routines. And it's just been a couple of weeks. Even right now, some of you may be laying flat on bed, eating potato chips in a worship service. Rather than sitting up, giving full attention to God, thinking properly. Letting the mind drift is one of the easiest things in the world to do. I've let it happen to me before. Of course I have. But it is one of the most crippling things to living the Christian life. Remember, the secret to the Christian life begins with how you think. Where does an undisciplined mind wander off to? Do you know? Have you ever traced it when you just let it go? You watch kids, you know, and they don't have any direction and they just wander off in the danger, right? A little toddler, like, where did he go? You know, it's not good. You know, he's not doing something safe. He wandered off. He's put something in his mouth. He's about to fall off of something. It's exactly what happens with an unprepared mind. It's easy prey for anxious thoughts. Have you been getting more and more anxious? That's because you let your mind drift. How long will the coronavirus last? Will I have a job when it's all over? What's going to happen? Or angry thoughts. Those politicians are messing this whole thing up. But if I were in charge, you know what I would have done? Or it drifts into lustful passions. Here's my opportunity. Unrealistic dreams, sitting there dreaming about things that you're just never going to have in your life. So why are you dreaming about it? Wandering around looking at giant mansions of homes you're never going to own. How about this? Getting caught up in conspiracy theories. No, 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 no. I know. I know it's a conspiracy. You, you don't know. And then passing on rumors. What a waste of a moment in your life's history. What happens when your grandchildren are saying one day, hey, when the coronavirus hit, what were you doing? What did you do? Uh, I was kind of flaking out. Yeah. You can't live the Christian life that way. Preparing your mind sounds more like Philippians 4.8. Many of you have this verse memorized. That's a great application of this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, and here's the exhortation, let your mind dwell on those things. Park it right there. By the way, the most true and excellent, pure and lovely and praiseworthy thing is the coming of Jesus Christ in glory, right? to reverse the curse and to reign righteously. How about put your mind on that? Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. Jesus, when speaking of his coming, told the disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately upon open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Yes, you may be busy sweeping the floor, fixing something that's broken, plowing the dirt out in the field. Jesus Christ is still coming. Things are still going to change, and you need to get your mind ready for those things. That's the first response. Now the second response, keep sober in spirit or keeping sober in spirit. What we hope for is still a future thing, guys. We Christians really have to keep our mind looking to the future. Our best days are still ahead of us. Our best world is not today. It's in the future. It's not realized now. So what do we do now? If the best days are not now, but they're in the future, what do we do now? Well, we need to make sure we understand the times in which we live. 
you know, what is a wise person? It's a person who makes decisions in the present about what he sees and perceives are going to happen in the future. That's wisdom, right? If I make a decision now and I don't know what's coming up, then I'm, I'm really a, a fool. If I think I'm going to spend all my money now and, and then I don't think about the things I'm going to need the money for later, we'd say that person's a fool, right? If I gorge myself and eat all kinds of things now and don't think about how I'm going to feel tomorrow, that's foolish. We, a wise person thinks about the future, thinks about the present in light of the future. If I make this decision now, what's going to happen then? That's what we're supposed to be. Be sober now. Understand the times now. What's going on? Well, it requires keeping sober in spirit. That keep sober in spirit is really just one word in Greek. Uh, literally, it just means being sober. The spirit or mind part is assumed from the context about our thinking and our focus. By the way, it's in the present tense, and that means we're going to need to continuously be sober. That doesn't mean you can't ever crack a joke. That doesn't mean you can't ever lighten up. It just means we Christians, generally speaking, need to be a little bit more, much more aware, I should say, of what's going on in the world than other people are. While they're playing games, we're like, uh, no, there's serious spiritual realities going on here. We're sober people. So uh, what do we need to be sober about? Well, would you keep your finger in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and flip to chapter 4 in the same letter. Chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, and you'll see one thing we're to be sober about. He says, it writes there, the end of all things, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Did you know that we live in the last days? We are closer to Christ's return now than ever before. The present world order is passing away. That's something to be sober about. The world's passing away. Everything's going to change. It's not going to remain the same. And praise God. Now, that's one thing. We have the coming of Christ. Go to chapter 5 in 1 Peter and down to verse 8. 1 Peter 5. Verse 8, it says, be of sober spirit. And then he kind of adds to that. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Wow. We not only have to worry about or be sober about the fact that we live in the end times and we need to be careful about that, but in these end times, Satan's aware of what God is at least trying to accomplish and he's going to go about in our churches and he's going to take this opportunity to try to eat somebody up, devour someone, take their faith away. I'm not saying they can lose their salvation, but he's going to go after the weak. He's going to attack them. Satan is active in the world. That should make us sober. You think you could just sit at home and there's no spiritual warfare for you or you could just walk by the way and that doesn't have any kind of implication? Satan's going to try to get you to be self-gratified and self-exalting. Because if you can go after the flesh and you can go after your pride and you can do all those things, then you're not going to be a very effective worker for the kingdom of God. And then he's got you neutralized to clear you. You're a Christian, but you're all kind of into how you feel right now, what you're going to do, and you're not really wanting to see what's going on in the world. You don't want to serve good. He's got you kind of packed away. You're not very useful for the kingdom of Christ. That's where Satan wants you. Or worse, he's going to chew you up. Guys, this is not a world in which Christians, Christians can just play around and party. We have to fight. We have to work hard. We have to contend, be sober, be alert. The virus, if the virus helps us to realize that, praise God. 
You know, many of us have been praying for years, Lord, would you just shake the pride of our country and help more people come to salvation? We witness so much, it seems, and so few repent of their sins. Maybe God is shaking away the foundations of what other people hope in so we have this opportunity to lead folks to Christ. Pastors are being told in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, but you be sober in all things. Pastors know that because they're always dealing with all of the difficulties that people are dealing with, you know, all of the temptations because people open up and, Pastor, I'm struggling with this and I had this sin and I did this and I don't think I really agree with that that you said. I don't know about this and I have doubts about this. We're, we're having to be sober about all things. And so you can be that way as well. In fact, if you go on in 2 Timothy 4, 5, it says, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's another verse about sobriety, spiritually speaking. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, we are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. I'm just afraid some of you are asleep, so to say, spiritually, need to be shaken up. Now, I'll just speak from personal experience. My experience is that I don't find enough believers who weigh their lives carefully, who understand the times in which they live, and actually sit down and plan to be productive for God and say, you know what? When I get to the end of my life, I want to be burnt out for God. You know what spiritual gifts I have? I want to use them to the fullest. Whatever light is burning for Christ, I want it to burn brighter. It just seems to me when you see a group of guys in church standing around talking, someone brings up a topic and almost invariably the topic goes to a joke. Somebody, somebody invents the light thing to say, the funny thing to say, everybody laughs and someone else tries to be funnier than the other guy. And there's this tendency in our day and age just to be funny, funny, funny. I like jokes, don't get me wrong. I really enjoy humor. I think there's a place for it. Um, but maybe there's too much of that. Society has almost produced a comical age where those that can make you laugh are the elite. That doesn't really fit into what's actually happening in the world. I don't want that to spill over in your home life, in your private life. Maybe you're at home and you're wasting way too much time with games and videos. Think about that. Think about when the whole virus is over. We come back and we still can't get workers for our church ministries. We can't get people to volunteer enough time to put enough devotion into it. And we have all this time for games and videos. And then we beg for the time and we get complained against. It intrudes on your playlist. You make excuses rather than produce fruit. Let me ask you this. Before the virus hit, did you really ever make sacrifices of time and money for the kingdom of God? Or did you just say, you know, that's for other people to do? Well, now you have time to reassess your life soberly. Be sober. Get serious with God. Think how he can use you. Maybe it's good you can't go out to every sports event that you want to right now. (laughs) Maybe it's good you have to, no concerts to go to, although I heard they're bringing them online now and everything. (laughs) Maybe it's great you can't go out to the movies for a while or dine out or go to the art galleries or be entertained with all of those things for a while. Maybe God is giving everybody a chance right now 
to do some self-evaluation before jumping back into the routines where you make the same mistakes over and over again. What is most important? What are you going to excel at? You cannot excel at everything. When you used to say, look, I don't have time to memorize scripture. I have barely time to pray. I bet you you have time now, but are you doing it? So that wasn't really true, was it? It was really about priorities because now you have the time and there's still something in your heart that says, you know, I'd rather skip along and do something else. Sober people emphasize what's most important, the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, his church. In the end, those are the things that matter most. I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor and a preacher. That's what God's word says. Those are the golden nuggets that when they clunk on God's scale, weigh the most. Those are the things that matter in life. I'll give you another list. 1 Timothy 6 tells us to flee from the love of money. Have you been sitting there and counting how the stocks are going down and what that might be doing to your retirement account? How about this? You man of God, it says, uh, flee from the love of money, money, you man of God, and pursue, here's a list, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Imagine taking those six characteristics and over this time doing a little bit of study of your own life and saying, how can I pursue being a more righteous person, being a more godly person? And what's the difference between those two? And how can I grow in faith and love and perseverance and gentleness? That would be a sober approach. Pursue those things. And keeping with what we've been talking about all the way through verse 13, there's one thing we should be most sober and alert about, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ in glory. Matthew 25, in verses uh, 1 through 13, Jesus taught the parable of the ten virgins, uh, with the ones that had oil lamps and those that were not prepared, and he ended it with, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. That is our primary response to what we're going through on earth, and that is, our third response, fix your hope completely on Christ's glorious coming. That's where all of this leads to. Girding your mind, preparing your mind, getting it stirred up for action, being sober about the times, where of all of that lead? Now take your hope and fix it completely on Christ's glorious coming. That's our third point. What is hope? I mean, not the church, Hope Bible Church. We call ourselves Hope Bible Church. When you go out and talk to people, by the way, hey, what church do you go to? I go to Hope Bible Church. You have a lead-in right there to talk about the gospel. I just say, yeah, what we hope is, we hope in the coming of Christ, and then boom, you're right into a gospel presentation. What is hope? Hope is an expectation of what will transpire in our lives in the future. Hope, the term in Greek, elpis, it's an amazing Christian word. It's a future-looking faith. It's very close to faith, but it's faith that's kind of faced towards the future. And because of faith, it sees what's going to be coming to our benefit. It actually develops into a, a conviction in English language when we say, well, I hope something's going to happen. It almost sounds like we doubt it. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, when we speak of hope, it's a conviction. No, I know it's coming. It's what we expect. It's a certainty of what will happen. It's what I long for, but even more, it's what I expect is going to happen. Thomas Watson wrote in Godly Man's Picture, faith is the mother of hope. First, 
We believe the promise, then we hope for it. Faith is the oil which feeds the lamp of hope. You did not expect or hope for a worldwide pandemic. I guarantee that. I don't remember anybody in this church saying, you know what would be really great 2020 is if we got a worldwide pandemic. Uh, I don't remember anybody saying that. I didn't. I've been preparing for, I've been telling people, you know, you need to prepare and have stuff away. I thought we were going to get an EMP. That was me. I'm not a prophet, so I got it wrong. It was not an EMP. It was a virus. But we didn't expect for this. We didn't want this. What did you hope for this year? As, as, as we went into the new year back on January 1st, what were you hoping this year would be? Easy life, smooth sailing, uninterruption of your plans. You know, when the world's hopes are dashed to pieces, for them, life becomes a bummer, depressing, maybe even scary because they're all, you know, they're shaken up. Obviously, they need to get a better hope. Uh, their hope is not working for them. We might call it a dead hope. They might hope very strongly like, oh boy, I wish this is going to happen. But what they're hoping will happen is dead. And so guess what? It's not going to happen. Did you know that we Christians can boast? We're not allowed to brag about ourselves. That's pride. That's kind of the spirit of Satan there. But we are allowed to boast. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19, it says, we have a better hope. <laughs> we got a better hope. I got a better hope than you. Have you ever told that to somebody? It's a living hope. Why is it called a living hope? Because the one we're hoping in is actually living. He's alive. He's going to come back. We're going to see him. He will do with this world what he promised he would do. And the difference between Jesus and other people that make promises is Jesus actually has the power to accomplish what he said he's going to do. We, the children of God, are waiting there, expecting that to happen, hoping in him, believing in him. We get to be glorified on that day also. Now look at verse 13 again. I think some people read this verse and they think Peter is exaggerating. Peter is not exaggerating. He said, fix your hope completely, completely in the revelation of Christ's glory. I went out this morning, early in the morning. I wanted to get some prayer and uh, it was kind of foggy out where we were. And I was meditating on the beginning of the Lord's Prayer because I had to teach that for the first hour or what we call the disciples' prayer. And I was thinking, you know, hallowed be thy name and had all this cloudy fog around me. I was thinking, God is so perfect and so holy. And it was great because there were no cars driving by and I was all alone and it was dark and yet the fog was around me. It gave me that sense of, you know, just being transferred up into heaven and just standing there and praying to God and how holy and hallowed he was. And of course, after we say that in the Lord's prayer, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I was praying that. Longing to see down here in this fallen and broken world, where nothing seems to make sense, all of the power and the glory of heaven, and that's what I was praying for, hoping for that, hoping for that day when everything that's up there and it's right, that it comes following the Lord Jesus Christ, streaming down with glory down here, and we get to participate in that glory. All of human history is flowing towards something. The history books get it wrong, but in the Bible, we get it right, and that is all flowing towards one king's reign, the reign of Jesus, the Messiah, over all of the world. That's where all of human history is heading. Now, of course, the Bible says things are going to get worse before they get better. There are going to be false messiahs and wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and famines, false churches. Yes, even plagues are mentioned, viruses. 
These are precursors or birth pangs until the end of the age. But we, if we look to the end of the age, and our hope is really there, we really have put all of our eggs in one basket, the basket of Christ's victory and glory and his sharing that reign and that glory with us. Fix it all on that. Because if you don't fix it all on that, you're going to fix it somewhere else partially, and that's going to be disappointing to you. In the end is glory. Not just for Jesus. In the end is glory for us also. Uh, the story of the Bible in Revelation 19, Revelation 20, it ends with Jesus riding a white horse and he's called faithful and true and he's the word of God and there are a bunch of white horses behind him, don't forget, and they're clothed in, in fine linen, white linen as well. And they're coming and Jesus is going to rule over the world with a rod of iron. And he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And he's riding back from heaven to earth to be victorious over everything. That's the end of the story leading into the eternal state. But we get to ride along with him. We get to share the glory with him. That's the point. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. That's our expectation. Guys, that is our hope. Our hope now takes some perseverance. Right now, you look around you, you don't see all of that. So it takes perseverance. In Romans 8.25, Paul wrote in a section where he's considering how bad life is down here and all of nature is groaning and all of that. It said, we hope for what we do not see with perseverance. We wait eagerly for it. Listen, nobody hopes for something they already have. Nobody hopes for something that they already see, they already possess. The things that we hope for, we have not yet seen, so it takes perseverance. But they're so great, the things we hope for. We can wait with perseverance for them. We can be eagerly anticipating them now. Yes, we endure viruses. We endure trials, the difficulties discomforts of being at home, family members, maybe they're not treating us the way we want them to treat us. You might feel trapped. We don't have the money we want to have. We can't do the activities we want. We feel cooped up. You could put in whatever you want. We endure that. We persevere that. We're able to do that because we have a fantastic hope that they don't have. The world does not have. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have never in my life heard of a better hope than the one the Bible gives. That one right there. There is no better expectation. What would people be waiting for? You look at the people, they go through life, they build up the nicest house, the nicest cars, they have the, the best workplace and all of that, and they just have to, they're going to lose all of that anyways. And they begin to lose it in this lifetime. It begins chipping away at them. There is no better hope. Even if you didn't like this, what are you going to turn to? Anything you would turn to is not as great as this. In 1 John 2, 7, it says, The world is passing away, and those who do its lusts. But the one who does the will of God is going to remain forever. Look, our bodies grow old. They die. Uh, some of you might have put your hope in nutrition and fervent exercise. There's no real hope in that, guys. They will fail you. Businesses fail. Governments fall, buildings crumble, families fall apart. God wants us longing for something that will remain. The glorious revealing of his son when he acts to remove all pain, all sorrow. And yes, he glorifies us. 
I have concluded that the pain and evil of today should never cause us to question God's goodness, but cause us to eagerly wait for God to fulfill what he promised he's going to give to us. Without this hope, you have no hope. Without this hope, you really have no hope. And with this hope, you have more than hope. You're going to gain heaven. You're going to get it. You're going to gain a resurrection body. You're going to gain Jesus Christ himself. You're going to gain a rich and future inheritance. I don't know what you and I are going to look like in glory, but you and I are going to gain glory. Hallelujah. You and I will never, ever be disappointed with that. I can deal with this pandemic, not with the message, stay home, stay strong, (laughs) but by preparing my Christian mind for action and do the most that I can for God, he's channeled me where I am. I'm going to do what I can do right there. They always say, bloom where you're planted, right? So let's do it. By staying sober about what's happening all around me, making the most of my time because the days are evil and living each day with an eye on that coming day. Ah, I have something you don't have but you can have it too. What are you doing now during this time to get ready for that day? If Jesus were revealed in glory today, would that disappoint you? His glorious coming should be the controlling event in your daily decision-making, not life returning to normal, not finally God, you know, your graduation, not the ups and downs of the economy, not your business's success. This verse says there's a lot of grace that's going to be brought to us then. Do you believe that or do you not believe that? After all the salvation that God has given to us, our new birth and all of that still, from the hand of God, there's going to be brought a whole bunch more of grace. Wow. We're going to experience all of that. As we close, here's a glimpse of what some scripture verses say will happen on that glorious day. Matthew 24 Verse 30, then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I cannot imagine what that's going to be like. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in the verse 7 through 10 section, it says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. I want to see that too. You're going to have your coming out party at that time, by the way. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him just as he is. And you are going to get to rejoice with exaltation, 1 Peter 4, 13. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. You get it? For every pain, You suffer now for Christ. There is a greater exaltation to come and there is no celebration on earth that can compare. Even in our very passage, 1 Peter 1, verse 7, it says at that time, God's gonna commend you. He's gonna give you honor and he's gonna give you glory. Why? Because you were refined. Your faith was refined by the fires of trial and you came out on the other side with a strong expectation fixed on Christ's coming. So he's gonna commend you. I think that's exciting. And Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him 
in glory. Glory, glory, glory. That's our future. Keep your eye there. Eagerly waiting, brothers and sisters, with a prepared mind, a sober spirit, poised to serve him mightily now, looking to his victory then. This is our Jesus. He guaranteed all of this. Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies to these sayings says, yes, I am coming quickly. And how do we end? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. We're going to pray and we're going to sing the song, The Solid Rock. Father, take these words and impress them hard into our hearts and waken your people and use them mightily according to your own sovereign plan. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.